1: on this episode of News World.
3: Four late-stage coronavirus vaccine trials backed by the United States could fail to provide positive results.
1: WHO will not... Endorse a vaccine that's not effective and safe. These are all guesstimates. I mean, if you look at the, the projection of the enrollment and the kinds of things you'll need to get a decision about whether the vaccine is safe and effective, most of us project that that's going to be by November, December, by the end of the year. In
3: terms of realistic timelines, we're really not expecting to see widespread vaccination until the middle of next year.
1: Right now, I will say we're preparing earnestly for what I intend will be reality is that there'll be one or more vaccines available for us in November, December.
3: I do not think you're going
1: to see a vaccine licensed by
3: the FDA get a biologics license application for broad distribution in 2020.
1: Through Operation Warp Speed, we have three vaccines in the final stage of clinical trials. Yesterday, Pfizer announced that it expects to have the results of its trial very, very shortly, next month but very shortly. We remain on track to deliver a vaccine before the end of the year, and maybe even before November 1st. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, the fastest a vaccine has ever been developed is four years. And most take 10 to 15 years to develop and test in clinical trials. But scientists are now racing to create a vaccine for COVID-19 in less than one year. Dozens of research teams around the world are working to develop a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, using a mix of established techniques and new technologies. Funding for a vaccine has never been greater, with billions of dollars pouring in from around the world to make a product that could help control the pandemic. But the U.S., China and Europe have invested the most. Several American companies are working towards having a safe and effective vaccine distributed by the end of 2020. Cambridge, Massachusetts-based biotech company Moderna Inc. and the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases have co-developed the vaccine known as mRNA-1273, which is now in phase three clinical trials with 30,000 adult volunteers who do not have COVID-19. For an update on the phase three vaccine trials, I am pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Tal Zaks, chief medical officer of Moderna. He oversees clinical development and regulatory affairs across Moderna. I'm really delighted to have as my guest today, Dr. Tal Sachs, the Chief Medical Officer for Moderna. Before he joined Moderna, he was a Senior Vice President and Head of Global Oncology at Sanofi, where he was responsible for all aspects of oncology, drug discovery, development, and commercialization. Now, that's really quite a background. You're a specialist in oncology. How did you get intrigued with oncology?
4: That's Takes me back. Growing up studying medicine, it always felt to me like one of the true frontiers of unmet medical needs. We've all had exposure to this in our families. I had an aunt who died when she was in her late 30s and I was a boy. You get the picture of sort of two things for me when I was a medical student. One is the Phenomenal advancements of science. We are fortunate to be living in an era that is just beautiful in terms of the pace of what we are learning and then the implications of it. On the other hand, you walk into a medical ward and it's devastating. And especially with oncology and certainly, you know, when I trained as a student now roughly 30 years ago, in metastatic disease, you talk about palliative care And that dichotomy, advancements of the science and what you see firsthand as the unmet need, I think is what propelled me into oncology. And it's also what propelled me into sort of living in this transitional phase, how to best translate science into medicine.
1: I spent a lot of time with Andy von Eschenbach, both when he was the head of the National Cancer Institute and then was at FDA. And he had this sense that we really are, in the middle of a scientific revolution as it relates to cancer of such extraordinary power that over the next decade or two, we're going to really be amazed at how much we get done. When you think about your own career, how much has the science changed from the time you were in graduate school?
4: I think it's changed tremendously. I mean, just to point at a few things, the cloning of the human genome. The technical advances in sequencing since then that allow us now to do it in a matter of hours and a couple of days for every individual patient has just been dramatic.
1: When you think about approaching COVID, how does that affect your thinking? How are we doing it differently? I was looking back at the amazing story of the polio vaccine. The first epidemic was 1894, and it really was a single remarkable person who not only developed the vaccine, but actually tested it initially on himself and his family back when we didn't really have a rigorous FDA system, and then went out and just got volunteers. I think there were 100,000 volunteers the first year, and it was all just kind of wild open. But you think today how much different our systems are, how much more rigorous they are. How does this scientific revolution affect the way you and Moderna are looking at developing A vaccine for COVID-19? Well, I think
4: profoundly in the sense that this wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago, maybe not even five. And I think it's the advancement of the genetic technologies that have enabled a platform like ours, which uses messenger RNA, to actually take a page from a chapter of life in a way, which is understanding the sequence of a virus, and how to translate that sequence into a vaccine based on the same code, but now generated synthetically, such that we can educate our own body to make the protein as if it had the virus in it without actually having the virus. In fact, we as a company didn't need to have the virus at hand to start. We talk about the digital information. This is really an application of that digital revolution into the healthcare field, in the sense that we could go in two days from knowing what the sequence is to starting production on the first vaccine candidate to get tested, and that's because we started from information. The Chinese uploaded the sequence to the cloud to the benefit of everybody, and we basically took a couple of days, looked at that information, translated it into what should be a vaccine, and off we are.
1: About 20 years ago, we began to realize that mathematical modeling was getting so powerful that actually a great deal... Of aerodynamics was now being studied in what was, in effect, a mathematical wind tunnel. They were able to mimic reality so brilliantly at really complex levels of how wings respond to wind that you really didn't have the kind of testing you would have had 30 or 40 years ago. And I'm hearing you say, sort of, something parallel, which is that if you can find the mathematical structure of what you're trying to deal with, you actually have an enormous advantage over simply dealing directly with the virus itself because you are now analyzing and working with it, experimenting on it, so you can see how it works back and forth depending on what you're doing with it. mean is that a reasonable parallel?
4: I think in a very important way, yes. And in a very important way, we still have ways to go. So let me explain. Because we start from digital information, our ability to test different drug and vaccine candidates has risen exponentially. So we make mRNA molecules at research scale, and this is all done with full robotics. We can make up to 1,000 different constructs a month in our labs for the researchers. And so if a researcher has an idea for one, they order one, but if they want to test 100 variants, they just order 100. And now you become actually the models in which apply the material not the actual chemical matter that you need to synthesize, because you just change the code and out comes a different type of construct. And that, when applied in this way, to because what we're dealing really are information drugs in a way. Our drugs simply encode the information to make a protein. They don't actually encode for a protein. And because they all have the same backbone and the same fundamental structure, once you solve it once, you then replicate it almost digitally. And so that has been the backbone of why our company has been able to be so productive. On the other hand, I'm hesitant to go all the way there because I don't think the human body and pathophysiology of diseases is yet fully there where we are with other matters of engineering. I think that there's still a lot of unknown. One of the things I learned at Moderna, and it's been partially because of working so closely with a visionary CEO, Stefan, who really is an engineer, is the difference between the engineering mindset and the physician mindset. For an engineer, if they know the space and you give them a complicated problem, they can very quickly tell you whether a solution exists or not, and if it does, what are the resources requirement? You ask an engineer, can I get to the moon? The answer is yes, it'll take you this amount of money, this amount of people, et cetera. But today we know the answer, and here's what it looks like. You ask a medical oncologist, is this drug going to cure cancer? And my answer is, I don't know. I think it's worth trying. I think it's got a credible scientific hypothesis, but I still can't model that to the same level of certainty. And that's why drug development, especially for fields like oncology, has been so fraught. Now, take it to COVID, actually... We've got the benefit there of knowing a heck of a lot more than we do for things like cancer, because for infectious disease and especially vaccines, I think a lot of it has been worked out. We know that neutralizing antibodies, for example, are the part of the immune response that takes care of these kinds of viruses. And that's been proven time and again for other respiratory viruses, whether they're close cousins of COVID like SARS and MERS or more distant relatives like flu. We know with a long history of vaccine, what a vaccine needs to do as far as the immune system is concerned to generate that kind of immune response that is likely to lead to benefit. So I think in infectious disease vaccines, we certainly have a leg up in terms of history of science that is positioning us well. And it's one of the reasons we've been able to move so rapidly.
1: I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when... Against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at newtgingrichsilvercoin.com.
3: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy, and anytime is right to listen to iHeart Radio's iHeart Country Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
1: When I look back, and it took about fifty-nine years to go from the first polio epidemic to the vaccine, it took a long time to get the first flu vaccine, we sort of understood the virus that caused chickenpox in the 1950s, but the first vaccine was not developed until 1970 and wasn't available in the US till 1995, so about 34 years. Took 15 years to get a vaccine for HPV and four years for the mumps, nine years for the measles. Is the revolution in information, the reason that we are able to move so much more aggressively and have such a much tighter timeline. The historic average is like, I think, 10.7 years for a vaccine development. So we're really cramping it down by almost 80% or 90%. Is that a function of the information revolution or are we kidding ourselves?
4: No, no, I think writ large, that is the number one factor that's driving this. I think it's information revolution. I think it's the level of sharing. And I think for us and similar platforms, it is two other elements that are important. I think one is that we didn't come to this de novo in the sense that this is the first application of our platform to this kind of problem. For the past several years, we had recognized the utility of this kind of platform to apply to a vaccine. In fact, our first clinical entry five years ago was against a threat of a type of avian influenza that we were afraid would come from the East. We were already studying pandemic threats as a place to prove the platform. And late last year in September, Stefan and I were down meeting with Tony Fauci and his team, and the NIH, to give them credit, had recognized the potential of this platform to move quickly. And so we had been talking about whether we should do a demonstration project of a viral that is not a threat, but may become a threat, things like Nipah virus that most people haven't heard of. And so we were going to do this experiment to say, let's start the clock artificially and see how fast we can go, when in January, it became apparent that this is not a drill this is actually a live fire. And so in that regard, I think the preparedness on our hand from the platform in terms of collaboration and for the world at large to share information has enabled us to move so quickly. I think just one last point on that, to give credit where it's due, I think regulatory agencies, starting with the FDA here, but globally, have really been very collaborative and have taken a very forward-looking, iterative stance in terms of how they work with us And that has also allowed us to move much more quickly because we know what regulators expect. We know it almost immediately and we're able to go and have these dialogues with them in a timely manner.
1: To what extent does artificial intelligence begin to be helpful or is that still several decades away? There are places where it is starting to be
4: applied. I think it's still the early days. I can give you one example. The biggest enablement of speed when it comes to the large phase three trials here is going to be our ability to predict how do we vaccinate people who are likely to get infected. The way you know if a vaccine works is you give it to a whole bunch of people and then you have a control group. And if you get more cases in the control than you did in the people you vaccinated, you know the vaccine worked. And in fact, it's the proportion of cases between the controls and the vaccinated that tells you how well it works. And so the trials are ultimately dependent on seeing enough people come down with an infection. If we went and immunized people who then never got infected, never got sick, we would never know if a vaccine worked. So it's been critical when you look at these large phase three trials to make sure that you're going into populations where transmission rates are high. And there, I think we and others for the past several months have been working very closely with mathematical modelers of epidemiology, you know, the science of of how things spread and where they occur in the population to be ready and predict and react to places where transmission is high, because we want to go vaccinate those people who are most likely to get infected. And I think there, I've seen a lot of innovation and forward thinking in terms of applying all the way through to artificial intelligence modeling to ensure that we are immunizing the right people in the right places.
1: If I understand correctly, there are 135 preclinical trials, 21 vaccine trials in phase one, 13 in phase two, eight in phase three, and two vaccines approved for earlier limited use. How many companies do you think in the end will have vaccines that are commercially practical for marketing?
4: I think it's very hard to predict. I can tell you one thing for sure. I hope many companies succeed. I hope the world is not just dependent on Moderna succeeding here. I think we're the front runner and so far have the best data. But certainly I hope others will step up and demonstrate that they can also help here because getting that rapid expansion of manufacturing capacity is going to be critical in the coming years if we really want to vaccinate everybody as a way to get to the other side of COVID. We hope this will ultimately establish the need for a manufacturing footprint for a new technology for mRNA that will enable us to react even quicker, you know, when SARS-CoV-3 hits one day in the future.
1: As I understand it, the actual production of vaccines today, let's say the flu vaccine, is still an egg-based model, which is very cumbersome and very time-consuming. And as I think about 70 years old, Do you see a serious effort to try to radically reshape how we manufacture once we get the breakthrough to a reliable vaccine?
4: Absolutely. And I think we and others are already looking at it. I think the challenge with flu vaccines has been that these are very established. They take time to react because these are essentially chicken farms. And it takes you time every time a new strain is announced, which is why we sometimes miss that season because the WHO releases it six months ahead of time. And if by the time you show up with the vaccine, it turns out that it's actually a slightly different strain, then we don't do a good job as protecting. So I think ours and similar technologies will eventually change the paradigm for flu vaccines as well, because we should be able to react quickly. That being said, of course, there's been I'd say, an economic hurdle to that change, given the very low commodity price of flu vaccines that make it difficult for a new technology to establish there. I think on the other side of COVID, the ability of us and others to rapidly scale up and improve our costs will ultimately enable us to take on those challenges as well. These are the relatively simple vaccines in the sense that it's a simple antigen. We understand the disease and we know what to protect against there are much more complicated pathogens for which we still don't have a vaccine. Cytomegalovirus is the number one cause of childhood neurological birth defects. We still don't have a vaccine to that, even though we've been trying for 50 years. And that's for various complicated regions of biology. HIV is another one. I think that this progress should enable platforms like ours to start to tackle them. And in fact, I'm optimistic. We're on track to start a phase three trial for cytomegalovirus next year, and it's leveraging other digital aspects of our technology, the ability to do multiple sequences in parallel. That is what's at the root of, I think, our potential to impact that disease.
1: As I understand it, the current models you were describing, it, it is literally chicken farms and having huge volume of eggs that are then used to grow the vaccine. Do you have an intellectual model of what a replacement system might look like?
4: If you look at our manufacturing footprint, what we do is we basically just take that instruction set, and it's encoded in a molecule called messenger RNA. But the beauty is that one molecule of messenger RNA makes thousands and thousands of proteins once it's in your cell. So it's basically the instruction set. It's a transient copy of the gene required to make that protein. And so a large scale manufacturing footprint for us is a 30 to 60 liter bag, right? That's relatively small when you talk about manufacturing. It fits in a small room. And so production facilities for us, even at large scale, are gonna have much less capital intensity and are gonna move much more quickly because of the underlying
1: nature of the technology. Should operation warp speed have as part of it, a component to help finance the revolutions in manufacturing?
4: Well, I think the U.S. government has always been on the forefront of that. I give the government a lot of credit. I think for many years, they've been trying to push not just technology from a scientific and biological perspective, but actually also from a manufacturing one. So I think it's always been part of BARDA's remit. And in fact, we had been working with them. You may recall Zika, which was a big threat back in 2016, 2017, and we thought was going to come to our southern states. I think we got lucky and dodged a bullet and that pandemic shifted away. We were all concerned it'll come back one day. And BARDA had already joined with us back in 2017 to develop a Zika vaccine. I think the U.S. government has been looking ahead and trying to help sponsor manufacturing innovation. Now, that being said, I think it's also true that the relative investment of the u.s government to our success has been marginal in the sense that we're successful because of years of investment of billions of dollars by private entities and that's what enabled the u.s government then to come in relatively late in the day and add in a little bit more investment really to ramp up the production and the process to be applied to COVID.
1: Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I am thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at Newt dot com. That's Newt Hey, Sarah, I
0: love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo.
2: OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was
0: edited so well.
3: craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free
1: something like this seems to show up about every 10 years so i think we probably ought to quit being surprised from your perspective let's say we get a workable vaccine and I know that many people really want to try to be able to, the whole point of Operation Warp Speed is to get ready to 300 million doses of a safe, effective vaccine by January of 21. How likely do you think that is? I'm actually optimistic. I think there are enough
4: companies that are stepping up that Operation Warp Speed is likely to achieve its goals. They've done a pretty good job in terms of aligning the interest of the population and ensuring the government is there to support and organize and harmonize to the degree possible. They've got a big mission ahead of them in terms of distribution, for sure. And I think that's going to be challenging. But I think we and others have already been investing at risk to ramp up production. So I think production is going to come online to those quantities by us and others. And I think by then we should also get the first signs of efficacy from the first trials reading out in the sense that we should get the confidence that, indeed, this vaccine, which has prevented viral replication in every species we've put it in, mice, non-human primates, has generated neutralizing antibodies at levels that are even higher than if you get infected, that should all translate into efficacy, and we hope to be able to show it by then as well. I think the likelihood is very high that, indeed, they will have been successful in that endeavor. I think the challenge that faces us is going to be one of distribution and getting it to the population. And that's where I have to tell you, most of my life, if you'd asked me six months ago to describe who I am, I'd tell you I'm a guy who cares deeply about translating science into medicine. I find myself in recent months really trying to translate medicine into politics in the sense that the public understanding, enthusiasm, and acceptance of this is really political in nature politics is what unites us as human beings to have shared meaning. And I actually take that responsibility very serious. And I think all of us who are in the midst of doing that first step of translating science into medicines, our job isn't done unless we're able to translate those medicines into something that is of real tangible benefit. And that must include ensuring that people understand what it is we're doing. Well, as
1: you know, there's a significant minority who are deeply anti-vaccine, and including some fairly famous people like Robert Kennedy Jr. What percent of the country can avoid taking the vaccine and still have it be effective? Let's say we could get 60 or 70% of the country to voluntarily take the vaccine. Is that a big enough penetration that it probably minimizes the next epidemic? Or in fact, does it have to be much higher than that? It's a good question.
4: It depends on two things. It depends on the rate of adoption, and it depends on the effectiveness of a vaccine. So if a vaccine is 50% effective, then you're going to want close to everybody to get it because you still, at the individual level, don't have full protection. If a vaccine is 80 to 90% effective, then you'll probably achieve herd immunity. So I think how good the vaccines are is going to matter in this context. And It's one of the reasons that we pushed our vaccine to a dose that's the highest tolerated, but that we believe can actually achieve those high levels of protection. I think the second element is a question of time. So what do I mean by that? Look, when the vaccine comes out, there's not going to be enough for everybody who wants it. So to the degree that there is a large proportion of the population that doesn't want it, I'm fine with that. Let the people who want it get in line first. What's going to happen is that those people will get protected And the people who don't wanna get it are gonna remain at risk. And the more of those people there are, the more the risk is of this virus continuing to circulate in the population. And the longer it will take for the virus to eventually disappear, if it will disappear. If it stays endemic, then they will continue to have that risk. This disease is not a mild cold, and especially in the elderly, right? So it is a significant risk. So I worry about those people. But at the end of the day, I respect their right to say, you know, I don't want it for myself. Unfortunately, the way this is circulating in the population, they're going to be hurting themselves. And the more of them they are on a population basis, the longer that risk will remain.
1: If you get a pretty effective vaccine, within one or two years, it should be pretty obvious the difference in the illness rate between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So there should be a sort of practical fact-based ability to say to people, look, this is the level of risk you're running if you don't get vaccinated. So it's not necessarily the, the implementation of government fiat, but it's an ability to track both populations and say, you're running what is a mathematically definable risk, which has potentially really serious consequences.
4: Right. And I think in this current day of age, and I think CDC is going to be looking at this very carefully. And they're already talking about the type of real world observations that they're going to be looking at over time to understand the benefit of the vaccine and the risk that remains for those who are unvaccinated.
1: Let me ask you two other things. One, to what extent do you think COVID is likely to prove to be relatively stable as opposed to the flus which change annually? And to what extent do you think we may be faced with a series of evolutionary COVID threats? The honest truth is, I don't know.
4: There's Two sort of competing facts that play here. One is the fact that the type of virus that COVID is is not like flu. This virus actually has a proofreading enzyme as part of its genome, which means that it's actually less likely than flu to mutate. And I think that's been true of this type of coronaviruses. Now, that being said, the level of circulation in humans, we've already seen strains emerge that are more likely to infect that have higher infectivity. They're not immunological variants in the sense that immunity against one is still immunity against the other, but they do tend to infect more. And so this virus clearly has shown it has some subtle ability to change. And as you said correctly a few minutes ago, we shouldn't be surprised and we should be expecting the next one in the sense that we had MERS, we had SARS or SARS-CoV-1, and now we've got SARS-CoV-2. And I expect in the future, There will be a SARS-CoV-3 at some point. I'm less concerned about it once we get through this for the simple reason that I think if this pandemic allows us to establish the utility of platforms like ours to now protect against disease, and we establish the manufacturing footprint, and we maintain that manufacturing footprint such that we can react quicker the next time, then the next time we get SARS-CoV-3, the response should be like for flu, which can be in a few months as opposed to like it is now. And so between establishing the utility of the platform, we don't run a phase three trial every season for every new flu. We accept the fact that it works. And if we match the strain of the vaccine to the strain circulating in the population, it's by and large effective. I think the same you'll see with technology like messenger RNA and with the manufacturing footprint that's out there. Internally, we have a program in the company, we don't talk about it much widely, but we call it the Never Again Project. How do we take the learnings from this from a manufacturing standpoint and make sure that we retain that ability to react in the future?
1: Well, that actually it's my last big question, which is totally from a different angle, but goes back to your original personal passion. What is it you've learned out of this experience that gets you to rethink approaches to oncology? I didn't care
4: about you know, how sexy the drug was, I cared whether it was going to have an impact for patients. So as a drug developer for oncology, I looked at every opportunity. In the last decade and especially between the revolution of genetics that we spoke about earlier here that has enabled us to move so effectively against COVID. And I think for me, personally, closing a circle with my early days at the NIH working with Steve Rosenberg on immunotherapy of cancer, I think we continue to look for ways in which to marry them. I can tell you, one of the first things that I did when I joined Moderna was to start an effort for a personalized cancer vaccine. So we're actually taking that genomic information, the ability to sequence every individual now rapidly and cheaply, and figure out, and this is all mathematical modeling, right? So we have a personalized cancer vaccine where we start from the genetic information in somebody's cancer, it goes up to the cloud. There's a bioinformatics mathematical model that within about three hours spits out what should be the vaccine that we project is going to work to immunize that patient against their own cancer. We put it into production and within a couple of months, it's back injected into the patient. We've done that now. And we're actually in the midst of a phase two trial for patients with melanoma to see if it works. Now, true to what I told you before, I don't know if it's going to work, but it's got a very solid scientific hypothesis. And this revolution has enabled us to go test that hypothesis.
1: That's terrific. That's very exciting. Thank you for dedicating so much of your life to improving the health of others and this current challenge of improving the health of the entire country and indirectly the entire world. It's very exciting to talk with you. So I thank you for your taking the time. And I wish you tremendous success, not just in what you're doing right now at Moderna, but also in being able to apply it more broadly to all the challenges of oncology. This has been very, very uplifting conversation. I thank you for it.
4: Thank you so much for taking the time. As I said, I relish every opportunity to be true to the mission of being able to speak to the public at large, to tell the story of what it is we're trying to do, because without that understanding, I don't think we'll be effective.
1: Thank you to my guest, Dr. Tal Zax. You can read more about Moderna's phase three trials of the COVID-19 vaccine on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers and our producer is Garnsey Slump. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newtsworld, generation of Americans grew up watching TV programs and John Wayne movies about the American West a narrative slanted only to the side of the union army of the settlers in his newest history killing crazy horse the merciless indian wars in america bill o'reilly tells both sides of this painful chapter in u.s history that helped forge a nation's expansion but at the ultimate cost for native americans bill o'reilly joins me on the next episode i'm newt Gingrich. this is newt's world
0: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
3: There's plenty to celebrate in March and National ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy, and anytime is right to listen to iHeart Radio's iHeart Country Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.